You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. Today's guests are very, very special to me. I met both Mickey and Wences a couple of years ago down in Chile and was totally impressed. The two of them have started several companies together and really made some terrific contributions. Uh, Wences is tr- originally from Argentina, and uh, Mickey is from Venezuela. And uh, they've got a great story about how they met, how they got together, what brought them here to Silicon Valley, and all the adventures they've had. I know that they're going to tell us a lot about what it means to be an entrepreneurial team and what's made them so successful. They are the co-founders currently of Bling Nation, and I can't wait to hear their story. Without further ado, what's this admit? Thank you very much, Tina. Um, thank you very much for having us. When Tina invited us to talk, um, she suggested a, a, a theme that we have informally talked with Tina and with others about, that is uh, the importance of an entrepreneurial partnership. The, 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 the partners you start something with, the, the co-founders, if you will. And we've talked a lot about it, and, and we, this is something that we paid a lot of attention. Mickey and I have been working together for over 13 years, but we've never given a talk like this about it, so it made it at the same time uh, very interesting to do something that we haven't done before, but also uh, more challenging than repeating some talks that we have done before. We believe that um, that we have that we do a lot of or not a lot but a little bit of angel investing and we realize that when we look at um, at a very early stage company that we are considering on investing almost without realizing we pay a lot of attention about the founding team and especially the dynamics within the 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 founding team and we think that is something that is very often overlooked. Um, we, um, I like uh, boats a lot, sailboats in particular, and I, I, uh, I bought used sailboats a few times, and I learned that sometimes instead of trying to go over and exp- uh, going over the technical specs of what this boat has, when they added this, when they added that, how many miles it has, where it has been, if they tell me the story about the previous owners, it's much more easy to understand everything that there is to do, everything sort of falls in place. You know, it's a couple and he really likes to sail, but she didn't want to sail, and so he put their conditioning so she wouldn't leave, and da-da-da. Everything, all of a sudden, things that were hard, very hard to make sense in the tech spreadsheet um, makes it make a lot of sense. And I find the same thing with, with companies. A lot of things that are hard to, to understand make a lot more sense when you understand the, the partnerships that drive those companies. And I think it's no coincidence when you look at some of the most important successes uh, in Silicon Valley, but elsewhere, the, you, you see very strong partnerships at the core of those successes. And also, when, when you see uh, companies that fail, you know, the, the, the usual explanation is we run out of money, but that's, that's a consequence of something else. You know, of course you run out of money, but why did you run out of money? And then they may follow the, that explanation by saying, well, we, we didn't get a good product market fit, or there was a problem with the product, or a problem with the marketing. And that's still a consequence. When you dig deeper and say, why did you have that problem? Very often, we see, um, we see problems that have to do with, with, uh, with the dynamics 
between the partners. And I think that that is something that is very often overlooked. Um, uh, much, many more companies fail because of the dynamics between people and then the number one focus for bad dynamics is the dynamics between the partners. So this is very important on, on both sides. And we, we sort of informally have talked a lot about this, um, about the many things that we have done together with Mickey over uh, a little over 13 years. And so the talk today, we wanted to summarize what we think we've learned. This is a probably um, a never-ending task. But there are some things that we think we learn, or when we see a team that we can see, it's a strong team, it's a weak team, what we like, what we don't, and, 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 and in our own sort of, of dynamics. Um, Mickey has, a, Mickey has a, a lot of opinions about this. Some of them are similar to mine, and some are very different. Yeah, yeah I think that... What, what we've learned in 13 years, I, I'm going to summarize it in five words and then we'll go over the, and give you the whole history. But it's, it's a partnership where it works because I have the looks and he has the brains. <laughs> and, that's, and that's the key for it. And we're going to go over it, but you're going to, find, you're going to come back and see it's about the looks and the brains. <laughs> I had to let him say that because he wouldn't let me preempt that. Um, we met in 1997 uh, in Argentina. Um, I was starting a business. Uh, I was uh, transforming a, a very small online broker, a very small traditional brokerage house, shut down the traditional brokerage operations and was relaunching it exclusively as, a, as, a broker, as an online broker, like an E-Trade, the first one in Latin America to do that. And I had this uh, crazy guy from Venezuela. I never left. I've never been to Venezuela or Colombia any time before, so I assume it had to be a narco or something like that, um, waiting at my office. Do you remember, Miki, how we met? Yes, we, we, uh, we met in 97, and we had this very short meeting where I was doing the same thing he was doing, but from Venezuela, and we immediately clicked. It was, it was an immediately uh, in action of looking for the same purpose. Both were from the same kind of backgrounds. Uh, both had started our own companies with what we had and we had to convince people to run it. And that, that same night, uh, something important that in retrospect, if we look back, it's, it's, a, it's one of the keys of our, of our partnership. That one night, that was probably in the summer of 97, we, he was polite enough after me asking to go out and have some beers because I took the flight all the way to Argentina to meet him. And when we are in the bar having some beers, a long story, but we end up in a bar fight. <laughs> and, uh, I got beat up first. <laughs> and then Mickey saved my ass. And, uh, and, after, and after that process, we ended up running together for like 10 blocks away from the, from the guys. <laughs> but something clicked there. Uh, some, some important factor about trust. Uh, there we were, two guys, met that same day. And even after that, we were covering one's other's ass, and trying to make it out of, out of the place alive. <laughs> and uh, it's, it, has, it has stuck to us. It was, a, it was an important component. So I will guess that one of, one of the key learnings from that is, is that particular story for us. We always tell it as a funny story, but it is true when we look back that, that it sort of has more meaning than it, than, than it sounds. Mickey came to visit me uh, out of the blue, and he said, hey, I've heard that you're a good techie, and I thought I was a good techie. I can code. I had done the first internet service provider in Argentina before this. Uh, and I uh, was trying 
to deploy this first uh, online broker in Argentina, but I, don't, I didn't even have a bank account at the time, and I truly did not know anything about finance. And that was something that he was trying to stress. Basically, he was saying, look, you may be very good at technology, but you are clueless about finance. You need me. Mickey had started the, uh, his first online broker when he was 17, which should be legal, but in Venezuela, he somehow managed to have a, a broker, a broker dealer at age 17. So by the time he, we were 23 then, so he was quite experienced for a 23-year-old with, with uh, financial markets and with broker-dealer houses in particular. So the, the proposal was, you know, you do the technology, I'll take care of the, of the broker-dealer business. And uh, it took a while for us to agree on terms and et cetera, but we agreed to merge the two companies. We, we fought. I wanted the headquarters to be in Buenos Aires. He wanted the headquarters to be in Caracas. So we agreed to have the headquarters in Miami. <laughs> and... Um, and we used the combined entity to acquire a seat in every exchange. Because to, do, to, to buy and sell securities, you have to have a seat on that, on that exchange. Um, it was, uh, and it was, uh, it still is, but back then, even more awkward process to get these seats in, and expensive in Latin America. So we used the combined entity to acquire a seat in every exchange from Mexico down to Chile. The company grew, grew uh, really, really fast for a couple of years. And it was acquired by Banco Santander for a little over $750 million in cash. And Mickey and I had to stay and work for them. Um, uh, the, the, for me, the, the, the main lesson from, from when we were doing Pata in Latin America is, and I, and I compare that to a lot of, of founding, founding teams that we meet with, is that in general, I find a lot more success when the founding team has met um, and sort of chosen each other based on merit, on merit, in some meritocratic way. And it may be that then, because of the things that you go through together uh, starting a company, you sort of have no choice but and become friends. But often the opposite is not true. When you, start, when you see teams that started being friends and then they try to also become good partners, I'm not saying it's impossible, but... It's a, it's a, when we see teams like that, it, it brings a yellow light. Not a red one, but it, it's harder. Because you have, to, um, you have to take a number of decisions that is very, very hard to take with someone who you didn't choose based on merit, but you chose based on, on friendship and, uh, and, and, and attachment or emotion, etc. And in our case, it happened by chance the other way around. And we think that, that there is something to that, uh, to, to that way of, of becoming a partner, starting with something that is, is based on merit. And if it goes from there to friendship, that's fine. But don't go the other way around. We had to stay and work for Banco Santander for four years. Um, but they wouldn't let us work on the Latin American business that we sold them. And basically, all of what we sold them was a Latin American business. So, and they were paying us a lot of money to, to stay there. So they asked us, say, look, you guys come up with something else, but they have very large operations in Latin America, and they were handing those operations, the business that they bought from us. You guys come up with something else that you want to help with. And, and it was basically Mickey that put that business plan together. We were, uh, this was uh, March of 2000, or April of 2000, and we decided that the best business opportunity to do with them in Europe was trying to build the first online bank. Uh, there was ING doing it somewhere up in the Netherlands. There was a company in, U in the UK trying to build an online bank, but there was no one, no one doing it in, in the Spain and Germany. So we put this plan together to do it with Santander. And um, at the time, uh, 
that particular process at the end, Wences was not there. You were, you were sailing somewhere in the, in the Antarctic. And, uh, and it was, there, there was no cell phone at the time. There was no way to communicate. And we had to make a, a very last minute regulatory d d decision because we were getting a bank. We were buying a bank and we were being named CEO of the banks. And uh, I just took the decision to put my name and be the CEO of the entire business while he was traveling. And um, when he came back and he opened his computer, first thing he sees is all over the place, my name. And, um, the, you know, many partnerships can have broken right there. Right? It's like you stab someone in the back. But I think that the, the formula for us is, this, is, the, is the ego. Um, we leave, we have a lot of ego from the door out when we are doing businesses. But when we're together, there's nothing like that. We leave, we leave it at the door. Yeah. Um, I still remember the shock. I left being the CEO and I came back and, and Mickey was the CEO. Um, but all it took it was a phone call to understand why it was the best decision and never doubting that it was done in the best interest of our, uh, of our, of our, of our company. And, um, and it, it's a tricky thing because I believe that to be an entrepreneur you, you need to have a high ego or at least very strong conviction about what you think that the world is going, about your own abilities. So it would be very hard to be an entrepreneur with low ego. I, I, I don't know if that's possible. So like Mickey says, from the door outwards, you need to have a very, very uh, high, strong ego, strong conviction. But between the partners, I think that the low ego uh, requirement is almost uh, uh, an, a, a, a required, a, a good partnership cannot work without that. And it, it means not only a, a, a funny situation like this, but in many other situations, not, not, not needing to take the merit for the things that you think you deserve, whether you think you deserve them or not, to be fine with the other partners taking that, the, the credit. And, and um, sometimes you see partnership when one of the two partners is okay not taking the credit and the other one needs the credit. That can work. I think it's healthier when neither of the partners really cares who takes that as long as, as the partnership is successful. And um, we were... Uh, 27 at the time, and the things become a lot more clearer with with with, with time and with perspective. But um, I don't think we had it that clear at the time. But looking back, I think uh, we are convinced that that's a, that's a very important element. That bank, both in Spain and in Germany, was the fastest growing bank for three years in a row. It grew to be nine nine billion euros in deposits, and when it grew, uh, when it got to that size, uh, Banco Santander acquired our stakes, and. Um, for a period of time, we, we um, went on to do different things. The, you know, uh, I remember when I was dating my wife for a, a couple of years, and uh, it was quite serious. Then we broke up, and I remember my friends telling, don't get back together, because if you get back together now, you get married. <laughs> and, and I have a number of friends for which that is true, and then it was true for me. We got back together and we got married. And I always say that's what happened to me with Mickey. We, <laughs> we went on, after doing Patagon, it was a very, very intense um, few years. I went on to start a video game company that then was acquired by, by Activision. Mickey went on to start a classified company that uh, was acquired by uh, Mercado Libre. And we were very, we were partners in a number of businesses at the time, and even in these businesses, he was an investor in 
my business and in the board and, and vice versa, etc. Um, but it was a very healthy experience to feel like you're choosing a partner. It wasn't imposed on, on, on us. And, um, and a, a very strong sense that, that the timing is right. Right after that, or actually it happened in between when we were still working on those companies, we started working on a, on a business plan that we had been toying around for a very long time, actually since the beginning of Patan, which was how to use technology to bring um, financial services to, to the underbank, to the bottom of the pyramid, in, especially in, in Latin America. Um, you want to tell the story how we got started with that, Miki? So we, out of, out of our experience with Patagon, with our first company, we, we liked uh, the country that we had liked the most was Brazil. It was, it was, now in 2011, it's easy to say, why Brazil? It's, it's booming, it's all over, but this was... We were there in 98 to 2000, not particularly the best time. In 2002, when we decided to move there, it was a new president who was just up in the polls, a new candidate who was up in the polls who came from the left. It was a very contrarian time to look at Brazil. But that's what it takes. It takes to, as an entrepreneur, we both uh, get the appetite to, as partners also, to go out when we see that there's nothing happening. We are contrarians by, by, by the sheer nature. That's what drives us as a, as a partnership. And we went and we applied for a banking license. We were 28 at the time, and it was a regulatory compliance process that I can give you another lecture about. And uh, after it was given to us, we started a business. We started a bank to serve that particular segment. I moved to Brazil. Uh, I didn't know the language. Uh, I had to learn Portuguese. First words I learned was, how, how, do you, how, how do you describe a balance sheet in Portuguese? And then I had to learn about soccer and then the rest. So that's a little bit of, of, of the business that we were, we were building there. I think there's, we were, we were, we were not together at the time. We were yeah, not spending I the took, whole time together. I took some time uh, to sail again. And um, we were talking with Mickey every day, even when I was in the middle of the Pacific on a sailboat. And that one day, I was literally in the middle of a crossing, in the, in the middle of the Pacific, and my wife comes out. I was at, at the helm, and she comes out, and she says, um, the toilet stopped working, which when you're in the middle of the Pacific, it means go fix the toilet. Uh, so, so I go down, and I push this button, and it goes like, whoop, whoop, whoop. I hear some pump. It must be somewhere. I'm not so familiar with this boat, and it doesn't work. And, you know, I have sort of the... Windows training, so I pushed the button again. Maybe this time it works. And, <laughs> whoop, 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 whoop. and I, I got exasperated and pushed it many times, and he like, whoop, 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 whoop. it wasn't going anywhere. So I had to, I lift the, the, the floorboards, and there's this much space between the floor and the bottom of the boat where all the pipes and the cables are. I'm trying to figure out what is what, and everything's very packed, and I, I see these pipes, and I figure this big one must be it, and I knock here and it feels like full and I knock here and it feels like empty and I can see there's a Y dividing it. It must be stuck in there and I hit it and, and then I loosen something and I pull out. And the second I did it, I thought, it, I realized that it was a bad idea but it was too late. And it went, and it exploded on me. And, and at the time I was uh, going to a bohemian face. I had long hair, a beard. I couldn't believe what was going on. I had to jump on the ocean. Had to stop. It took like uh, forever to clean that boat. Um, and that night, and we were we we you know as as a partnership when you are building a business, one of the things was talk. 
We talked every single day, every day, no matter where we were. And that day, I was, I remember perfectly, I had this, I was in, a, I was in the northern part of Brazil, whoever's been there, it's, it's a low-income area, I was in the middle of a favela area, and we had had a very rough day, very, very rough day in the business. And, uh, and that night, I called him, and I said, you know what, I just had a very shitty day. <laughs> I was so upset when she, he said that. I said, like, no, no, let me tell you about it. She did. <laughs> so uh, so it, it's, it's a communication. I mean, that, that made my day look like it was okay. I could leave for another day. And, and that's what it took. It took a lot of that. It's, it's being able to communicate more than, more than average. I mean, we, we over-communicate. Uh, and it's the only way to have a very coherent uh, think through process. And so we, we, um, we had other times where um, we were going uh, over communicating, as Mickey says. We were going for lunch every day, uh, just the two of us, and going over all the issues that we had in our mind that we wanted to bounce back and forth or make decisions on, etc. And at one point, as the bank got larger, uh, I said, hey, Mickey, you know what? Why don't we... Why don't we start going to lunch, you go with some people and I go with another group. Um, it, would, it would probably be good that, that we don't do this lunch, it's just the, the, you and I alone. Uh, it would be very helpful that we, we use them to spend time with the rest of the team. And also at the same time, we had the, our desks in an open office, but our desks were together and I decided to put them on opposite ends. And it was a disaster of an experiment. Um, in less than three months, we were back to having the lunches, just the two of us again, and the desks together again. And when we try to figure out why doesn't it work, is because when, when it's very, we think it's very important that the partnership be perceived from the rest of the organization as one. The thing I started a conversation with Mickey and keep it going with me if, if they don't see Mickey the next day, etc. And, and it has to feel like one. And for that, you have to be really over-communicated. Also, when we have issues between us, and we have tons of them, that they don't become... Um, public and open to the organization, not for a matter of secrecy or not being transparent, sort of the opposite is because it would be a problem for people to understand what to do, who, who, you know, who to, to, to follow direction from, etc. So when you, keep all, when you have all of these um, disagreements, to keep that just between ourselves, but also always uh, when it's outward facing to show one, one face, that one we agree. And if there's something I don't agree, I know that we are showing that... Uh, other decision that I disagree with until I can convince him somehow. But, but it would be very, very counterproductive to the partnership that we show those sort of different uh, um, faces and then the organization doesn't know what to do with that, etc. But acting as one, it, we think it's super important and it requires over-communicating to the point where it can be funny. Even if you're in the middle of the Pacific, you may get a call at night to see what the day was like. Um, Abligation, you want to... Frame this, Mickey. Yes. Uh, in 2007, uh, we were uh, in a f we were with our wives traveling, and uh, Wences come we're in we're in, in the India. we're in India, and he says, you know, I have this. Let me put some context. This was before the iPhone even came out. We, we had the iPhone was not even in the market. I have this vision that we're going to be using the phone to pay and that the phone is going to become a very important instrument in our financial uh, world. 
And that uh, I think that if there's an opportunity that it's going to happen and we're going to be spending the next 30 years of our life use, using our phone as a much more than what we are thinking. And by the time there was no uh, software, the phones were all locked. They had nothing. You cannot do anything on them. So I, I looked at him and I said, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you thinking? And, uh, but by now, after 10 years together, you build a certain level of trust. Important trust at any level. I mean, trust from you know, being a CEO when he's not, or vice versa, being able to talk and over-communicate. And when you get one of the partners in a, with that level of motivation, the trust becomes an important aspect for success. So this, we, I, I was living at the time, I was in between Brazil and Venezuela. Uh, had a, we were both with small kids. And this was February of 07. And by August of 07, we both had relocated to to Silicon Valley. We both had moved our families here. We had no clue what we were going to do with it, but we decided that based on the trust that we have and our ability to work as a team, this was the place to do it. And we moved our entire personal you know, circle with us now to here to start this. Um, it, uh, it it didn't feel so crazy at the time when we did it. As time goes by, we look back and it, it feels um, uh, like a, a crazier move. We started, um, as, uh, shortly after we started, the iPhone came out and that pretty much changed dramatically um, the, 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 the mobile landscape. Um, we started issuing, we started focusing on enabling consumers to pay at the retail location by tapping their phones, issuing this stickers that we call blink tax with an RFID sticker. And we do that, we started doing that with banks. We deployed with 17 different banks across the country in, in communities of less than 200,000 people. And we felt that that didn't allow us to grow the way we wanted. We were at the mercy of the banks to acquire more consumers. So we did a partnership with PayPal to go directly to the consumers through PayPal and bypass the banks. We did a, a pilot here in the Bay Area with PayPal and then we found the problem was uh, the cost. It was too expensive for us to acquire the merchants. And we improved that a lot, but we couldn't make it economic. And we couldn't make it work. We started focusing on very large merchants. And shortly after we started focusing on the large merchants, so did the very, very large companies like Google, um, AT&T, and Verizon with, with ISIS, with their joint venture, and, and even PayPal itself going after these very large merchants with a value proposition that we couldn't match. Subsidizing Google alone is subsidizing almost $500 million worth of hardware. A lot of ISIS is subsidizing a lot of advertising dollars. And um, after, when that began to happen, we decided to, to, to regroup. And that's where we are right now in, in Blink Nation, taking some elements, some small elements that we think worked and getting rid of a lot of things that we haven't been able to work. Uh, to relaunch, hopefully, in a month or so. Um, I also find in this, in this, in this process uh, that it's a very hard process of iterating, changing, recognizing what, what has failed, uh, go with something else. Having a partner who you can trust and, 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 and share these uh, impressions you have in as an intellectually honest way as possible, it's invaluable. If we didn't have that trust, it, it would be much more likely that you're just that you would just keep trying with something that maybe you know that is not the right thing, the right thing to do. And I think that has become very obvious in what we're doing uh, at Bling Nation. 
I, um, I try to, to think why is that the, the, we think that the importance of these entrepreneurial partnerships are so important. Um, why, uh, uh, sometimes we think that they are much more important than, than some of the individual skills in a management team, much more important than the specific technology or business plan. And we think that that may be the case because even though you don't learn that by reading the books or in school or nobody tells you, the, the hardest part of doing a startup is the, the emotional demands of, that you go, will go through. And having the right partner, the right uh, entrepreneurial partner, allows you to um, go through those emotional demands in a much uh, healthier way, where you can discuss all of the things that you are obsessing about, you can uh, uh, be much more open, much more open than you could be maybe with your investors or that you could be with, with your team, and allows you to go, um, go through things not only f uh, much faster than you would on your own, but also uh, with a much uh, more uh, high quality output of decisions. And it has definitely been the case in, in, in our case, and we wanted to share that story with you guys. Thank you. Terrific, and I think you have some time to take some questions yes. from the audience. Great. I'll let you moderate yourself. All right. Yes. Uh, at the bar fight, which of you guys started it? <laughs> uh, we, uh, uh, he asked at the bar fight which of you guys started it. We he, were sitting at a. He, he started it. I didn't. <laughs> he started it, and I had to come in and. Yeah. We were sitting at the at the bar that you can sit on both sides, just like a, a table. Mickey was sitting on this side, and I was sitting on this side. It was very crowded. There were a couple of other friends around us, and we were talking. And all of a sudden, I saw a, a hand coming at me very hard. And the next thing I remember is I was flying back and I hit the wall. And um, apparently, it was some girl I was looking at or something. Like that. <laughs> yes. What are some of the big challenges that you see retailers facing as consumers increasingly can pay by phone and other means? Um, what are some of the top things that, that retailers are going to have to adjust to? So the question is, what do you think retailers need to adjust as, the, as more people start to interact with their phones? I think that the retailers are in the best position of all. Uh, they control the experience at the store. They control the value that they're willing to give each one of us for our business, uh, for us doing our shopping there. So actually, I, I, I will argue that they're, right now, if, if you look at the landscape, they're being offered from 10 different companies access to more and more ways of generating value at the store. So it's the other way around. I think that the challenge is for anybody who wants to work with retailers is what do you have that is different that will find compelling value from them and, and interest from them to work with you. Um, especially the large retailers, I agree with that. I think that retailers, especially the large retailers, are in a unique position that they haven't been in a long time, where uh, all of the players are going after them. 
and in most cases they they are exclusive offers they have to choose to work with one or the other but not with more than one of, of these large players that are going after them at the same time so um, right as the market is right now they seem to be in a great position I do see the combination of mobile and social creating more of a shift in consumer behavior in how we shop than e-commerce did and it seems like retailers uh, or, or many many retailers didn't take the threat of e-commerce um, seriously enough and they've lost uh, depending on the categories but anywhere from 6 to 15 percent market share to e-commerce because they didn't take it seriously enough early on when they should have taken it seriously enough and I think a little bit of a repeat but probably with much bigger consequences may be playing out right now where the combination of social and mobile may change uh, market share more dramatically than e-commerce did and the retailers are being even more passive than they were with e-commerce. Yeah. So you guys have lived in Latin America, in, um, in Europe and now in Silicon Valley and I understand that there are three different, very drastic different cultural um, you know, traits about those three places. What do you guys think about entrepreneurship in Latin America right now, in Europe, and in Silicon Valley? Just because most of the people, uh, international students, I'm from Panama, people want to come here to Silicon Valley to you know, start a business because there are so many people, 21, 22-year-old guys, trying to start companies here. What do you think uh, a 21-year-old guy should do if they're from Europe, from Latin America? Should they come to Silicon Valley or is it a good start to do it in your home country and then move on uh, to Silicon Valley? You want to start? Oh. I think it's very difficult and maybe I'm responsible to give sort of a blanket answer to that. It depends for each person, for each um, startup uh, idea, depending on what, what you're chasing or trying to accomplish. I think that one, um, the entrepreneurial ecosystems are incredibly different in Europe, in Silicon Valley, and in Latin America. And in Latin America, um, Doing a startup anywhere in the world, it's hard. It's a game that the numbers do not look very favorable. If you, you know, this, whatever it is, it's um, 1%, 10%, if you want to be incredibly generous, will be successful. Um, but let's say it's 1%, and that's a chance of 0 0.01. When you, in Latin America, any business, forget about a startup, has a 1% chance of surviving the ups and downs of the, of the economy, the lack of a strong institutional uh, framework or rule of law, etc., uh, etc. Et it's much, much harder for companies in general to operate in this environment of very high friction than it is in the US or in Europe. And when you combine those chances, sort of the, the startup chances times the, the Latin America or emerging market high friction, the result, it's, it's an exponentially low it, the risk gets compounded, and the upside doesn't get compounded uh, at all. In, in many cases, it, the upside is less than in the developed world because the markets are smaller. So, so unless you, there, there is a very clear angle on how you know the market or a very specific opportunity, etc., I think that, that, that the, this trade-off of going to emerging markets because there's less competition is not necessarily a clear trade-off that, that it pays off. There may be more competition here, but when you're executing 
in a place like Silicon Valley, you're focused 80% of the time in creating value and 20% of the time with dealing with the friction that comes with doing anything. In, in Latin America, in most places, you are lucky if you can focus 40% of the time to creating value and 60% of the time is dealing with the friction, which for a startup, it's, it's, a, it's asphyxiating and can kill them very easily. There is a practical example that we learned when we moved here. In South America or in Europe, as an entrepreneur, whenever you start a company and you believe in it you, you're, yourself, you typically put your own money to it. And you start, and that gives you much more credibility than any other aspect. You know, that's what they want to see in those environments, that you're willing to risk your own net worth to build a business. In Silicon Valley, it's, it's, a very, it's wired differently. Uh, here, to be credible, to, to be able to talk to a business or a retailer or anybody to, while, while that you want to build a company around, you need to show that you're venture-backed. And that's just one little example of a big difference when you get to choose a market. You know, those, uh, the, the venture capital industry, it's not that sophisticated nor exists so well in Latin America yet. Nor in, in Europe, it's there, but it's not as broad as Silicon Valley. So those are some of the examples of things that you have to handle when, when you make a decision where, where you want to base it. I, um, if I were an emerging market entrepreneur who's very familiar with Silicon Valley, I would be looking at opportunities where I could develop a, a product and a business from um, Panama or wherever it is and using the local talent, which... Um, Sometimes you'll be surprised, you know, the quality of the talent you can get there uh, can be much better than, than what you can get in here. Because, and that's very counterintuitive, but, but here the talent is not only expensive, but the best talent is often taken by the very large companies. So when you look at the startups, they will have one brilliant engineer for every four to nine good but average engineers. And in Panama, you may have the luxury of creating a team of nine brilliant engineers. That's very, very hard to do in Silicon Valley. And I think it's just a matter of time before we see a world-class company uh, addressing the world markets and the developed world markets from, an emerge, from the emerging markets. Actually, I think that the biggest reason why that is not happening is sort of self-imposed censorship, if you will. There are um, entrepreneurs who have the right ideas to do from Vietnam or from Panama or from Turkey, and that they would like to launch them to the developed world from their market but they don't do because they haven't seen people do it before and they think it's impossible. And I just think we have to see the first examples of that to, to begin to see a big trend in that area, especially, yeah, especially in mobile where I think some of these markets are very advanced in how they use the mobile phone. There's a question over there. Yep. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the distribution of work between you two, especially now when you both know how to do everything and also uh, your decision-making process and yeah. So the question is, is how do we um, divide the roles between us and how, what's the decision-making process? Yeah, we don't divide the roles. Uh, we, we always show uh, one coherent uh, owner, one coherent manager, one coherent founder, one coherent CEO. Uh, we, we will always try to be together, analyze and over-communicate. So we will... If it's something that I hear from somebody talking to me about an issue about technology, I typically will listen, will understand, will try to figure out an answer, but I will most probably 
go back, talk to witnesses, define and come back. Even if we don't agree, it's the answer that I took at the time. And vice versa. And we will try to, but when you over communicate, you fix that. If you sort of divide roles, we've seen that that's a formula for, for lots of problems. Unless you guys, I mean, unless the, the partnership is well enough built that you exactly know your expertise and each one is comfortable executing on them. We, we sense that we are not good enough for that, so we needed two of us to do one good guy, and we do it together. It's I think there are different partnerships work differently, and we, we've seen examples of, of people who work very, very differently, and it works very well for them. Um, but for us, as Mickey says, so we, we try to have the company interact with us as if it were one. And it's not that they have to come to me with marketing issues and they have to go to Mickey for um, strategic issues or what have you. They can come with either. And we know which ones I'd rather check and which ones I can just go. And, and that, that's why the sort of the over-communicating is so important. But that's just the recipe that works for us. And I wouldn't say uh, that it's the recipe. that There are as many as, 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 as there are people. Yep. Well, since you said you often disagree with each other, can you give us two or three examples of times you disagree? Yeah. Um, <laughs> we disagree. Yeah, the question is that um, if we could give examples of times we disagree. Um, I have to pick the right ones, the ones that are favorable for me. Let me see. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, um, we uh, we recently did uh, um, uh, took one of the hardest decisions that we've ever had to take together, which was to stop a lot of what we were doing with Bling Nation, and um, one of us was of the idea that we had to keep trying, that there were. Um, incremental improvements we could uh, we could do that would make a, enough of a difference, and another one, another one was of the difference that it, that it didn't matter how 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 much of a of a change we could do that the dynamic of the market was such that it wasn't a place for a startup to be there, and it was it's quite fundamental discussion and the position it wasn't like I I believe this but I don't care uh, we were very strongly held positions and uh, it's a typical position that would be a problem for the rest of the organization to to see to see through that um, and um, and we can go in every business I mean uh, every week I can tell you what is it that we are disagreeing at the time yeah. and um, you have an example Nikki? no I think that's that's the most recent one right? yeah uh, we we've we've, uh, we've tried to fix it by boxing I'm too long for him. <laughs> we have a ping pong table now and no match. But uh, but 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 uh, but the most the the yeah one one thing that works for us very well is that uh, we will it, because it's two and because when each one has a strong opinion, you are and and he's smarter than I am. Remember the first phrase I told you in the beginning. Uh, it, it makes you have to build your arguments better. I have to convince him, or vice versa. He has to convince me. And sometimes that takes a lot of time. 
I have to, it's not about a thought that I had that, oh, I'm going to make this shift now. No, no, this is about sitting down and, and building your arguments and trying to convince your long-term partner that you're looking at stuff differently. That's the core of the process that I think leads to much better decision-making and, and believe it or not, faster than you would on your own. I think faster sometimes some, on your own you would not have the pressure to, to react uh, quickly enough. Um, Yes. Um, you mentioned earlier that your partnership started based on merit and then became friendship. So could you give some advice or criteria for younger entrepreneurs who are also looking for their co-founders? Yeah. You know, um, it's, I think it's a, I see it as a very important question. And I see here a lot of founders who are looking for a co-founder. And, and asking what's the best way to go around uh, finding the right co-founder. And I believe there's a little bit more art than science to it. Um, it's a, it would be ridiculous to put together a book that says the steps that you do this in week one, week two, week three, week five, you have the right partner. It's a, part of it can be based on your skills and the complementary skills you're looking for, etc. But a lot of it has to do with the, chemi with the right chemistry, sort of the right uh, uh, experiences of, of, of each, etc. What, what I see that helps a lot is when you're looking for people that you respect and you trust. And when that respect comes from having worked together in some environment, whether it's that you were in the same company, you were in the same class, you were in different companies but working in a partnership or it was your client or your vendor or what have you. Um, and, and, and it started with, with respect, so that I really respect how the person works or make decisions, etc. That's a, a really good way to, to start. And second, when there is that kind of trust where you, where you think, you know what, even in, in a disagreement, and when it comes with concrete examples, not sort of a, when you see yourself disagreeing with someone and say, even if we had to do what she says, I would be okay because of that, of that trust that, that you have, that, 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 that you wouldn't really care who, you know, if at times it was you calling the shots or at times it was the other person because that the kind of, um, uh, of confidence you have in that person. And... Of course, it's very, very hard to say all of this a, a priori, but when you have that sense or that gut feeling with someone, I think that those are uh, good indicators. And very often, these decisions are made with a lot less than, than that, right? And you, you got to trust, uh, you got to see that there's a, you know, integrity. You have to, the first thing you have to see in whoever is a person is if, he's, if he has the integrity to be your partner, for a long time, and you gotta think that it's gonna be for a long time, and that if you're gonna go in a boat for three weeks, whatever he's doing or she's doing is it's what you will be doing if you if it were you sitting there. And uh, sometimes we overlook some of those basic human principles, and we just go to some technical expertise, some more specific skills. But I think integrity and motivation are f by far the first key ones that you need. And I wouldn't and I wouldn't rush. You see, I, we often see teams that were rushed, that they are, someone is very excited with an idea and they need a technical co-founder. And whenever someone uh, can uh, write two lines of logo, it becomes the, 
the technical co-founder. Um, it's like rushing, getting married. It's, it's, it's non-trivial, and I think there's too much of the success that depends on that. So it's better to wait and suffer all of the consequences of not having the right partner. It's better than having the wrong partner. Yes. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't me or him. Yo. Okay. <laughs> as you as, as as you regroup with Bling, given the market conditions, how do you decide um, it's good to be persistent and the market will 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 be with us eventually, versus um, versus being persistent is mostly throwing money down the drain. Yeah. How how do you know? Where, where you drop the line? You know, <clears throat> I think that's a great, great question. Um, unlike the previous so, question, say it out loud. The question is, you know, with the big change that we are doing in Bling, how do we know when you have to be persistent, and how do you know that persistent is just throwing money down the drain? Um, I find it. I, <laughs> The better I think the question is, the less I know the answer. But I think it's a really good question because, because it addresses this issue. I think to be an entrepreneur, you have to have some super strong convictions about, about what's the need on, on the market that you're addressing, how technology trends are playing and how they're going to converge with that need that you are supporting, very strong convictions about your product, your customers. But at the same time, you have to have the humility to listen and change. And, and where, what do you have a strong conviction about and what do you decide to listen and change? It's, not, it's a little bit of an art. And, and um, I wish I knew the answer. But I think that's the, that's the most important work that we do as entrepreneurs, sort of weaving through that and, and decide, no, no, look, this is, this is really, we have a strong conviction about this needs to be done this way no matter what. And these things, no, it's obviously not working. We have to change them. Um, in the past, when we look at things that have worked, Persistence was always a very, very important factor. We, we, we were very close to giving up, and we are grateful that we didn't give up. And probably, if we were on our own, we would have given up. I would definitely have given up. Maybe Mickey, no, because he's very stubborn. Um, but, um, uh, but, but it's very hard to say. And, and, and these things in perspective become very obvious and easy to talk about. You say, oh, you know, it was obvious that you had to do that. Things that are much closer, like the decision we bring right now, it's, it, you don't have that kind of certainty. I don't know if it's the right thing or not. It just feels that way, and we, looked, we think that we've been responsible and, and serious and thorough in looking at the different alternatives, but, but, but I don't know what the answer is. Yes? More personal question because I know I saw a lot of the marketing for Bling early on on campus. You had campus reps giving out the different Bling tags, and I was wondering what's your experience with marketing college campuses? Because I've heard, especially at Stanford, it's extremely tough to get through to students. And what kind of experience do you guys have with that? The question is, what kind of experience did we have marketing to to Stanford students? Because because you've heard that uh, it's really hard to market in, in in college campuses, particularly in Stanford. So. What, what, what we've learned is the best way to market to students, it's by students. And here in the crowd we have Lisa, and she worked with us. Uh, show your hand. She, she, she was with us during, during that process, and she's a, she's a student. She's finishing her, her last year now, uh, her last semester. And uh, it's, it's amazing. What, I, what, what we've learned is that there's, not, there's nothing you can plan on a whiteboard and all you need to do is to let the same crowd that 
lives, breathes, it's around here the whole time to be the ones that design it. Uh, and let them run, give them creativity, give them leeway, and just sit and see what happens. You know? We were warned about how hard it is to work uh, to market to Stanford, and we were surprised with how well we did compared to that, but it was mostly Lisa and her team's work. Uh, it's like they knew, we knew nothing about uh, what the hurdles were and what the best way to approach this, and it worked really well. Yes? With all the buzz of near-field communications, when do you think tap-to-pay will become a reality? And what shifts do you think have to happen for consumers to adopt it? You know, question. the question is, um, with all the buzz around NFC, near-field communication, what will be the tipping point for consumers to adopt it? Um, I think sometimes focusing too much on the technology is a problem. It, it's misleading. Um, we had uh, probably uh, a few dozen thousands of cons consumers using their phones to, to pay, tap and pay. And we can tell you that the consumer experience it's, uh, works very, very well across all kinds of ages, socioeconomic backgrounds, geographies. It, it's a lot more uh, intuitive as a gesture. Um, and the interaction, you know, to tap and to immediately know how much did you pay, how much you have left in your account, where, etc., than than the credit card. So I, I see no hurdle from the point of view of sort of the of the of the of the form factor, the gesture, etc. It's more of a, an issue of the infrastructure. When it will be easy for you to link that to the account you want to pay from? When will it be that the merchants have the right infrastructure uh, to accept that? And more and more, it looks like a game of very, very high capital expenditure where very large companies are willing to pay uh, to play. And I can see then once the infrastructure is in place, um, some opportunities for startups to go in between sort of the spaces of the big ones. But the, the big opportunity of just moving the money seems to be more of a big company kind of. Yes? So I want to ask the last question. All right. My question is, you guys have been really successful with lots of ventures. What motivates you now? This is really, really hard work. What is it that motivates you to keep on going to struggling companies? You start. I'll give you the wrap. From both of you. Yeah. Um, I don't know, uh, and I wish I knew. Um, I think. I think to figure out the answer to that. I should go to the shrink, and I'm scared they would <laughs> fix me, so I won't go. Um, now, when, when I was on that um, sailing trip, I started by thinking that I didn't want to do business anymore. I was uh, tired of business. I grew a beard, long hair, got a guitar, put it on a boat, and started sailing around the world. said, I'm never again going back to business. And... If you are successful in sailing around the world, you start in exactly the same place you started. And pretty much the same thing happened to my thinking. Is I, by the time I was done, we were started already working with Mickey and starting Bling Nation. Um, but it didn't feel the same. At some point, I realized that I, you know, very early on, I did this because I didn't have any money and it felt very oppressing and, and limiting to not. So money was a, was a, a big driver. Um, but now I couldn't say that money is a big driver. So for me, 
I remember being halfway uh, around the world with my wife in India, and she was asking questions about the culture and the history and the great things there are to learn about, about India. And I was asking the same people questions about their business and how it was working and the margins and how it could be improved with technology. And sort of realizing that this is something that you do not because you want to or not because you need to, but because this is what sort of comes naturally and that it gives you, that's what, this is what you like doing, creating, did you think these things from scratch and then they become something and it's immensely rewarding to work with teams you respect and admire to create things out of nothing. I, I feel very fortunate to be able to do that and, and it gives me energy. It's uh, some of the same components, but I'll give you a very quick story. The, the other day, my daughter lost her first tooth and my mother sent me a letter that I wrote when I, when I lost my first tooth. And my letter said, Dear Tooth Fairy, or it was, it's, a, it's a mouse actually in South America. But, uh, here's my tooth. Um, you know, our currency is very devalued. Could you please pay me in dollars? She's five years old. <laughs> so, and I was seven. So, I, I think that there is, there is a, there is a, multi, and I saw that letter and I, I couldn't show it to my, to my daughter. I didn't have the strength to show it. Uh, but uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's something that, you know, it's an energy that wakes you up. It's like you, every, night, every, every morning you, you put your fingers to the, plug and you just get sparkle and you get up, uh, having the chance to work, to discuss, because that's what we mostly do every day. It's something that uh, uh, it's, it's invigorating, being surrounded by people that you admire. I mean, in this room, I know a few of you, and just if I had written that someday I would have met some of you, had spent time, had read books about people here, or, or just socially, it would just blow my mind away. And uh, that's what uh, drives me. It's this aspect that uh, there is a, there's a lot to be done, and the question, every time I see something, I'm always trying to figure out what's the business there and what's going on. I can, you know, everything. I mean, even this campus, I was walking to this building, I was trying to make the mathematics work in my head. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it has to do with that. It's that motivation to, to really interact with people that, that you would like to learn more from. Uh, we do it ourselves. We do it with the teams that we, we surround ourselves with. We do it with the people that we want to invest with and go invest with. And it's just something that uh, my wife, who's now she's giving up and she just says, let's go ahead, whatever you say. So, and it's, it's a lot of fun. Terrific. I'm sure you'll agree this is just totally inspiring. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.